So have you ever lost your car? You know, I mean, you've been shopping all day or the big mall, you come out, your mind's fried, your credit card's maxed, and you cannot remember where you parked. Probably has happened to all of us at one time or another. Well, came across a few tips to help this hopefully never happen to you again. So if you have a smartphone, here's something you can do. You can get an app. There are apps out there that will help you find your car if you have lost it. So you can get an app. Also, if you have a smartphone, though, you can also take a picture or even a little short video of wherever it is that you parked. That way you'll have kind of a, a landmark. You know, you'll, you'll have the sign that says what section you parked in or what level of the garage you were on. And then, then when you don't know where you are, just pull out your phone, look at your picture, and you go, oh, yeah, I'm in section C. I'm on level 5. You'll, you'll know exactly where to go. Now, if you don't have a smartphone, I'm impressed, and I think I would like to be you. Uh, but if you don't have a smartphone, then, then here's some non-tech tips for you. Okay, Here's one. When you park, just go ahead and make it your practice to park next to the exit or the entrance. Then, then you have a natural landmark. I mean, you know exactly where you're going to be going. And if you don't do that, then, then get you some of them car flags, you know, the ones that you hang on your window. And, and the more creative, the better. You know, if you just get a Carolina or Clemson one, and, you know, there may be other people. Get one that just, just is unique to you, and then it's sticking up, and there's, there's no way you won't see that when you're coming through the parking lot. Those are some good tips in case your car has ever been hiding from you in the parking garage. Now, those tips are good, but I will say this. Those tips would not help a certain person in California. The California Highway Patrol this week found a car, a Jeep, buried in more than 20 feet of snow. It seems that a snowplow was coming along clearing the road in the, the Donner Pass near the Sierra Nevada Mountains, and, and when it got there, it kind of side of it bumped into the back of that Jeep that was covered in the snow. Now, thankfully, there's no indications that anyone was ever trapped in the Jeep, probably just kind of broke down or they left it on the side and got out before the big snow happened. Now, the nice thing, though, is that it's on the side of the road. So these guys didn't have to do anything with the Jeep. It's still sitting there. It wasn't blocking traffic, so they just left it there, and they figure when the snow's gone, uh, somebody will come back to get it. Now, in case that is your Jeep, I have a few tips for you. If you need it really soon, you're going to need a really big shovel. You're probably going to need a generator, a lot of power strips, and about 46 hair dryers because you're going to have to thaw out a lot of ice just to get to your car. If it's not yours, don't worry about it. Just be sure you have a smartphone app that tells you where your car is hidden. Now, one day you may find yourself in the parking lot, and you may not know where your car is. It may be hiding from you. Or one day, hopefully not, your car might be hiding in 20 feet of snow and ice. But there's another type of hiding that is different than all of that. It's not the kind of hiding because you can't find something. It's the kind of hiding because you're avoiding something. You're trying to stay away from something. And why would you hide like that? Well, you might be hiding in that way because of some pride or some arrogance. You might be hiding in that way because of some apathy or some indifference. You might be hiding that way because of fear or shame. You might be hiding that way because of foolishness or ignorance. Or you might not even know that you're hiding, even though you're hiding. We start a new series this morning in Genesis chapter 3. We're going all the way back to the, the first days on earth. And we're going to be looking specifically at a very dangerous game of hiding. 
my hope and my prayer is that as we walk through Genesis 3, that, that we will see how treacherous and how dangerous and how tragic this type of hiding is. But I also hope that as we walk through this, that we will discover the joy of what it means to truly be found and what it means to be found by God. Listen as we begin Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So here's the scene. It's the garden of paradise that God created for the man and the woman and for the beautiful plants and the unique animals that he created to inhabit the earth. Now I realize in this day and age there are a lot of people who think that the idea of there being one true creator God is is a very silly, irrational notion, that it's just a silly fairy tale. Lawrence Krauss is a theoretical physicist who teaches at Arizona State University. He has a new book out called The Greatest Story Ever Told So Far. In a radio interview this week, he was being interviewed, and, and in the interview he said that science in so many ways is getting better and better and better. And he said the reason science is getting better is because it's always changing, it's, it's always evolving. And then he said this, It's not like that other supposed greatest story ever told so far, which is sort of static and not even that interesting. Now, generally speaking, when you hear the greatest story ever told in our culture, it's talking about the 1965 epic film about the life of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. And so when you hear the phrase, the greatest story ever told, it's it's usually referring to the gospel, the person of Jesus. And I'm fairly certain that's exactly what he was referring to. And many people have an attitude that is similar to this, that the gospel is static. It's boring. It's, It's not even that interesting. Many people think that way. And they don't just think that way about the gospel. They think that way about the Bible, and they think that, that, that way about, about creation and that there is a creator God. Now, as believers, that should not cause us to, to get angry or to, to want to engage in, in violent debates. As a matter of fact, it should do the opposite. It should give us tender hearts, tender hearts that, that remind ourselves that we have good and great news, and we want to keep sharing this good and great news so that many people who believe the gospel is static and boring and not even that interesting would discover that the gospel is the greatest reality in the universe and the greatest reality in their lives. We want to keep sharing the good news. John Lennox is professor of mathematics emeritus at the University of Oxford, He has an interesting, thought-provoking approach to the idea of creation. This is what he says. There are not many options, essentially two. Either human intelligence ultimately owes its origin to mindless matter, or there is a creator. He's he's pretty right. There's, There's only kind of two options here. Either... Our origins are from mindless matter or from a creator. And then Lennox says this, It is strange that some people claim that it is their intelligence that leads them to prefer the first to the second. That intelligence would lead us to say, I came from mindless matter. That doesn't sound intelligent. We as a church believe and prefer the second. 
that creation exists because of the Creator, and that that Creator is the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Now, you may not have any problem with that truth. That may be something that you're fine believing, that there is one true Creator God. But when it comes to Genesis 3, there's something different. Genesis 3, there's, there's lots of questions, there's, there's lots of theories, there's lots of input. And so I want to go ahead and confess to you now that, that every question you have about Genesis 3, every idea, every detail, every theory will not be covered in four sermons in the next few weeks. We will focus primarily on what the text actually says, what's in these verses in Genesis 3, and, and we'll look at other places in the Bible that speak to these verses, but, but every question won't be answered. And so that brings us back to verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now this verse does not say that Satan is here. But when we look at the whole of the Bible, particularly Revelation 20 and, and Revelation 20 and 12, we, we have these pictures that, that point us to the fact that, that the enemy, Satan, is appearing using this serpent as his instrument to tempt the man and the woman. And it says here, and uses the word crafty. Now the word crafty means prudent or subtle. So it's not really a terrible word. I mean, by definition, it could be a word that's used for something positive or negative, which is exactly why it is the appropriate word for this verse. Because the enemy seems to be doing something that's not a big deal. He seems to be doing something that, that might even look okay. But the reality is he is up to evil. He is up to no good. And so what does he do through the serpent? Look at the next part of verse 1. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? So we have the serpent speaking to the woman and the woman does not scream in shock. <laughs> That's interesting, right? I mean, is this Narnia? You know, do all the animals speak the, the same language of the man and the woman and everybody just talks all the time? Well, the Bible doesn't say that. Did the woman actually see the mouth of the, the serpent move? Or is he throwing his voice, you know, like a ventriloquist? Well, we, we don't know. The Bible doesn't say What the Bible says is that the enemy spoke to the woman through the serpent and it does not say that the woman was afraid. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because the enemy doesn't appear as an enemy. There's nothing that shocks her. There's nothing that she's scared of. The enemy speaks to her, and, and she engages in the conversation. And what does he say to her? He says, did God really say that you couldn't eat from any of these cool fruit trees in the garden? Is, is that what he said? At my home, sometimes when I walk in, I will look across from the garage to the kitchen, and on the counter I will see that there are no paper towels on the paper towel roll. This is a, not a rare occurrence in my home. For some reason, the other people in my sweet family think that brown cardboard and heavy white woven tissue paper are the exact same thing. There's no, some confusion about what this should look like. 
And so oftentimes I will say, hey, somebody run out in the garage and, and get some more paper towels. Well, on this particular night when I came in, everybody was already upstairs. And so I laid all my stuff down, set it down on the ground. I was on the phone finishing up a call. And so I noticed there was no paper towels. I was like, well, I'll just take care of myself. So I go outside in the garage. I get the paper towels, come back in. I put my stuff down, finish my phone call, walk over to the paper towel roll. And I look down in my hand, and I am holding a roll of toilet paper. In just a few steps between the kitchen and the garage... Even in my own mind, something was lost in the original translation about what I was supposed to be picking up. The enemy is using familiar words, words that the woman would know. But he twists the words just enough to mess with the original translation. And what is the original translation? What is it that God said? We find it one chapter back in Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So God said you can eat from any tree in the garden. And the enemy said, why is it that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Close, but different. And then God said, but there's this one tree you can't eat from, and the enemy completely leaves that part out. He's close. He uses familiar words, but he twists it just enough so that there is a difference. The translation is changed. The communication is different. Remember our appropriate words for him? Crafty and subtle. See, what the enemy does is he tempts us to question God. He tempts us to say, would, would God really do that? I mean, that seems kind of unfair, right? Just this one tree? Why is this one tree such a big deal? Why does he have to act like such a dictator? He's kind of being rude. I mean, what's the big deal after all? Slowly but surely, those kind of questions begin to creep into our minds, and we start coloring outside the lines a little bit. Yeah, we still love baby Jesus at Christmas. And we still love the, the crucified, resurrected Jesus at Easter. But we begin to question all the other things. We begin to question some of those hard things that Jesus says, like we saw in Luke 12. We begin to wonder about all that other stuff in the rest of the Bible. And we begin to say, well, I've got the two main things and the other stuff, maybe it's not that big a deal, especially when it comes to creation and even especially when it comes to sin. The way the enemy works is he begins to toss out just some crafty questions. And we begin to go, well, you know, it's a different time. Things are different than when Jesus was around. Things are different than the garden. Things are different even when my great-great-grandparents were alive. So, so things are different now, so maybe the Bible doesn't really measure up. Maybe the truth of God doesn't measure up. So how does the woman respond to the crafty question? Look at verse 2 and 3. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it. Good job. I mean, she, she responds well. I mean, she, she pretty much gets exactly what God said. But then, bless her heart, she kept talking. Look at the rest of verse 3. You shall not eat from it, or touch it, or you will die. 
this would be a moment where Scooby would say, Raggy, that didn't happen. <laughs> that, that, that's not what God said. God didn't say anything about touching it. Now, somebody would say, oh, that's just semantics. I mean, that's just words. I mean, because you're going to have to touch the fruit if you're going to take the fruit. Well, that may be true, but the reality is I know how to walk up to a peach tree or an apple tree and eat without using my hands, you know. I'll just step up right to the limb and just, and just start munching. So, so it may not be so much about the touching part, but at the very least, God didn't say it. Again, someone would say, well, what's the big deal? I love this thought. One theologian said this, As soon as we begin to add to the words of God, so also we begin to take away from the words of God. See, adding just one or two words takes away what God is trying to communicate. At the very least, this shows that the enemy was, was messing with her mind a little bit. She, she was a little bit off in her thinking. And remember our appropriate words, crafty and subtle. Not fantastic. Not crazy, but, but crafty and subtle. So how does the enemy respond to what the woman says? Look in verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. So he's got her to question God's command first. Now he's getting her to question God's authority. You're not going to die from eating fruit. God's not going to do that to you. He, he just wants to kind of scare you so you will obey him. He wants to scare you into keeping the rules. Every single day of my life and every single day of your life, the enemy is still throwing crafty questions like that at us. It's still how he works. Come on, it's, it's just a fourth apple fritter. What's the big deal, right? Come on, it's, it's just one cheat sheet for one quiz. It's just a, a box of pens from the office workroom. Nobody will know it's gone. It's just a 30-minute reality TV show. I mean, how much is that really going to do to your mind and to the way you think? It's just a little fib on, on your tax return. It's just a few Sunday mornings at the lake. It's just, a, it's just a text. It's just a phone call. It's just a Snapchat. It's just a, a message on Facebook. It's just a coffee. It's just a lunch. It's just a drink. It's, it's, just, it's just one Bible verse. I mean, what's the big deal? Nothing's really going to happen. Friend, this is the crafty way the enemy works. Start small. Start simple. Start in a way that, that seems non-threatening. And then let it grow from there. He's going to continue to try to mess with her mind. Look at verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And here it is, the enemy's most often used phrase in your life and my life. His favorite phrase, uh, God doesn't want you to have any fun. That's the problem here. God, God wants you to sell everything you have and go live in a barn with no electricity. And when you're out in the parking lot and you're lost and you can't find your car, God wants you to take turn or burn tracks and put them under every single windshield wiper and every car all over that parking lot. Yeah, God, he, he doesn't want you to have fun. He just wants you to keep his rules. Because he knows if you keep his rules, that will make sure that you don't help you have fun. He knows if you keep his rules, you'll stay away from the good life, the life you really want. 
Listen, the enemy was and is and will always be a liar. Notice he's not forcing the woman to sin. He's not. He's just planting some seeds of doubt. Adrian Rogers said this, Satan Satan isn't interested in telling lies about little things. He wants you to believe lies about the biggest subject, God. If Satan can get your mind twisted about who God is and the trustworthiness of his character, then he has you. That's how the enemy works. The enemy gets you to start saying, I don't know, does God really love me? I mean, look what's happening in my life. Does does God really love me? And for the woman, what what is it with this tree? Why, Why is he not wanting us to tell Is he telling us the truth about this tree? I mean, why would he not want us to know good and evil? Why would he not want us to have knowledge and wisdom? Is he really going to punish us with death? And then I can see her going, wait a minute, what is death? I don't even know what death is. Why am I even having this conversation with myself about death? Maybe God really is trying to keep us from being our own gods. Maybe he really is trying to keep us from what would make us the most happy. See, the enemy still talks like that. He hasn't changed his conversation. And so I would plead with me and and with you, don't give in to those lies. The enemy always promises and creates questions, but he never delivers any answers. He promises pleasure, but the only thing he delivers is, is shame. So how does the woman respond to him the second time? Listen to verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. See, once the truth of God is challenged, once the, the first initial questions start popping up, then the doors begin to get wide open. She's looking at the tree now and she's thinking, You know, I mean, it's fruit. (laughs) I mean, it's still on the tree. It's ripe. It's good. I mean, it's not going to kill me. It's it's fruit. I mean, and it looks good. It looks tasty. And and even God himself said this is the the knowledge, the tree of knowledge. So so at the very least, if I eat this fruit, I mean, it's going to boost my my brain energy. So, So this can't be that bad. And so now the woman finds herself with a choice. She's either going to listen to the crafty lies of a talking serpent or she's going to affirm the honor and defend the authority of the God who fearfully and wonderfully made her. The God who has put her in a garden paradise full of grace and love. That's where she gets to live because of him. Those are her options. And needless to say, she chose poorly. She took and she ate. But that's not all she did. Look at the next part of verse 6. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Where's this guy been the whole time, right? I mean, are you kidding me? All of a sudden the man just shows up in the story? I mean, the the language of the text seems to, to indicate that maybe he was there the whole time. But he's been a part of this whole charade just just standing there, refusing to interject, refusing to protect his wife. And so, men, let me me give you two sentences to get out of your vocabulary because they're from the pits of hell. The first one is this, the devil made me do it. 
And the second one is, the woman made me do it. Now get those out of your vocabulary. See, the, the woman, she was tricked into taking the fruit through some very crafty questions. But the man knew exactly what he was doing. God had been clear in his instruction to him. And he knew what he was doing. So what happened? Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. This second part is a little odd. There is at least one type of fig leaf that feels like sandpaper. Kind of hoping that the man was smart enough not to use that kind of fig leaf. But, but they're trying to, to what? Cover, cover it up. We'll look more at this in the weeks to come. But, but in this moment, what we most need to see is, is that the enemy made some promises. The enemy promised them that they would get wisdom if they ate. The enemy promised them that they would be like their own gods if they ate. But they didn't get wisdom. They took the bait. They took the fruit they sinned. They didn't get wisdom. They didn't become their own gods. The only thing they got out of any of this was shame. Shame. The response was not happiness. The response was not pleasure. They didn't take this beautiful, gorgeous fruit and go, oh man, now I really am happy. No, their immediate response was shame. They knew they had sinned. They knew that they had rejected God's command. They knew they had rejected God's authority. They knew they rejected God's grace and God's love. They had pushed what was holy and good and awesome away from their life. They stepped up to the plate of truth and they took three awful swings at three weak, crafty pitches in the dirt. In less than five minutes... They went from the gates of paradise towards the gates of hell. And why? Why would they do that? Well, because they were convinced through some subtle, crafty language that if they would just do what they wanted to do, they would be happy. And friend, that's never true. That's always a lie. You see, the enemy says you will be free if you pursue whatever makes you the most happy. That's what he says. But the Lord says you will be free if you will pursue whatever makes you more holy. The enemy says that you will be most satisfied if you question God, if you disobey God, if you don't do every little thing that he says, because after all, it's not that big a deal. But the Lord says you will never be satisfied until you embrace and delight and desire his way, his truth, and his life. This is not a cute fairy tale. This is not an allegory with a, a moral to the story. Sin invaded creation. And according to everything in the whole message of the Bible, that same original sin has been inherited by every single one of us. We are all tainted with the first sin. 
The Apostle Paul put it this way to the Christians in Rome. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So who falls into the category of all? Kind of a simple word, right? All. All past, all present, all future, all. Everyone, everywhere, all fall short. They don't measure up. They aren't good enough to get to God. You know, sometimes I think when we think of sin, we always think it of something that we do instead of something that we are. Ravi Zacharias said this. He said, we think of sin as, as an action instead of a condition. Matt Perman is an author, ministry leader. He says this. We are not sinners because we sin. Rather, we sin because we are sinners. We are all born totally imprisoned in original sin. There is no island of goodness left in us. If we are born innocent and good, and many people say this, if we're born innocent and good, why aren't there at least some people who've continued in this state and remain sinless? The fact that everybody sins needs some explanation. And the best explanation is that we are sinners by nature. Sure, someone might argue that the reason all people sin is because society is sinful, and thus society renders it impossible for anybody to keep themselves entirely pure. That argument's made a lot. Perman says this, but that only pushes the question back one step. How did society get sinful in the first place? If people are born morally good, then how did it come about that they congregated into societies that influence all people to sin? The question of, of sin cannot be explained away. If we were born with an island of goodness, then the world would be a different place right now, right? And how about this? What if you just ignore everything else about the Bible, but maybe the, the only two commands that Jesus gave. Love the Lord your God with everything that you have and love your neighbor in the same way you love yourself. Even if we just listen to those two things, do you think things would be different in the Middle East? you think things would be different in your home or at work or, or even in the local church? Just those two things. See, the reality is sin is sin. And we are born into sin, and we need to be saved from sin. And sin is tragic eternally. And the enemy will, in a very subtle way, try to convince you it's no big deal. It's really no big deal. And again, that is a lie. His promises are never fulfilled. Not with pleasure, but just with pain. So this sounds like a lot of bad news. Is there any good news? Is there, is there any good news from this strange moment in the garden? Well, there is. And it wasn't in the garden that this good news began. It began before the foundations of the world. And the good news was from a whole different place. See, we're looking at Genesis 3, not just to look at Genesis 3, but we're looking at Genesis 3 and through Genesis 3 straight to the crucifixion and the resurrection. Hours before Jesus' body was hung on a cross outside of Jerusalem where, where he was crucified for the penalty of my sin and the penalty of your sin, Jesus took some bread and he broke it and he gave it to his closest friends. And he said to them, take 
and eat. This is my body given for you. Do those words sound a little bit familiar? See, the enemy comes to the man and the woman and says, hey, you know what? You should take and eat this fruit because it will bring you pleasure and it will make you your your own little God. But his take and eat was a lie. And please don't be confused. He is still saying to every single one of us, come on, come on, take and eat. It's, It's fine. But then there's the Son of God. Then there's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Then then there's the Savior who looks to us today and his take and eat is completely different. The enemy's take and eat comes with a lie. And the take and eat of Jesus comes with life. Life more abundant. Life more free. Life, not death. Rescue from death. I loved what the kids sang earlier. Death could not hold him. The grave could not contain him. That's what his take and eat means. The take and eat from Jesus says, I bring life. I give life. The take and eat from Jesus says, death will only be a sting. And that's the only power that it has. Because I have conquered death and I have conquered the grave. It's not a lie. It's a promise. And it's a promise paid for with his own blood. It's a promise guaranteed with the fact that Jesus is now alive. So come to Jesus. Take and eat and live.